It's Pi Augustine, your Division One candidate for Ipswich. My plan is for a community that is vibrant and attracts world investment, a community that is connected with the state-of-the-art transport system, a community that cares for our people and environment at a time of need. Division One needs a councillor that has the energy and motivation to get things done. A community champion. Find out more about me on my Facebook page, Pi Augustine for Division One. This ad was approved by Pi Augustine candidate. Ipswich deserves strong and stable leadership you know you can trust. I'm Mayor Teresa Harding, and as your Mayor, Ipswich is once again a city that businesses are proud to invest in and families love to call home. To keep our city moving forward, I'm committed to reducing cost of living pressures, expanding our road and transport networks, delivering more for our suburbs, and boosting investment in grassroots sports in our community. So vote one Teresa Harding for Mayor for sustainable growth for Ipswich. Authorised by T Harding, 264 South Station Road, Raceview. Coming up, Paul Tully on more than 40 years representing residents. Why he moved from Brisbane to Goodner in the 1970s. We break down four decades in public life, including some of those big and controversial council decisions. We also talk about the Office of Independent Assessor and will he run one more time next March. It's Saturday, November 4, 2023, and I'm Alan Roebuck. Welcome to Ipswich Today, which acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which it is produced, and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. This month, November 2023, marks 43 years for Paul Tully as an alderman and then councillor for Ipswich City Council. There was a well-publicised forced hiatus in 2018. The next council election rolls round in March 2024, and it will be 45 years since Paul Tully was first elected in 1979. Thank you for speaking with Ipswich today, Paul Tully. Thanks very much, Alan. Good to be with you. Before we talk about your council marathon, and I think it's a good way to describe it, let's go back even further. You've previously talked about uh, publicly uh, your time going to school in Indrapilly and how the nuns shaped your education and attitudes just tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I started in 57 at um, the Holy Family School at Indrapilly. I think they shaped our, our future with a feather duster now and then. Um, I tell people that it was all the other kids who got it, but to be truthful, uh, I think I might have got it once or twice. But that was the first three years. I grew up in Indrapilly. I didn't come to Ipswich um, until 1974, so that's 50 years next year that I can call myself a local. And then I went on to uh, Gregory Terrace, St Joseph's College with the uh, Christian Brothers, and uh, completed my education there um, you know, to grade 12. And they were a pretty powerful influence on, on my life. They were very strict, of course. They changed from the feather dusters to the uh, leather straps and um, that that was a trying time because you got that even if you answered a question wrongly. It wasn't just misconduct or misbehaviour. Then I completed a law degree at the University of Queensland and um, I I was working for the uh, Commonwealth Government for a number of years but it wasn't until 1995 after I was elected in 1979 uh, that we became full-time councillors in Ipswich after the amalgamation of us and Morton Shire. Well we'll get to those exciting times uh, as we have a chat today. What are your earliest memories of being a young child? Can you remember? 
Yeah, I grew up at uh, Vincent Street at Indrapilly. That's behind the Indrapilly Police Station opposite um, the Indrapilly Shopping Centre um, on Moggle Road, the, the street behind. I remember Crackenite um, in that, when it was in November and then later May or June. Uh, that was the highlight of the year. That, that beat Easter and Christmas and birthdays and everything else. That was, that was great fun. Um, yeah, I, we grew up on a street. I remember my dad, uh, this might have had an influence on me as well. I remember him writing to Clem Jones, who was the Lord Mayor of Brisbane, saying that our street, Vincent Street, Indrapilly, was the closest unsealed road to the City Hall. And, uh, and that was apparently true. And within a few months of my dad writing to Clem Jones, they came and sealed the street. It was a dirt road, a short road, probably only about 400 metres. But um, I guess that was in my mind, that if you want something done, you know, write to the council, write to the mayor or write to the local councillor. Make a noise and see what happens. In today's terms, would you describe yourself as a geeky kid or an, uh, an outdoor kid? I don't know if we had geeks in those days, but, but you know, myself and my mates, we, we used to make kites and catch possums and build um, r- little rafts. We'd take them down to the uh, Indrapilly Bridge and I don't think we ever got past... These weren't motorised, these were little paddle rafts made out of wood with a few cans on them to get them to float. I think we got to the middle of the river and no further ever and we had to swim for our lives to get back to the bank and then come home absolutely drenched. So, yeah, it was in the days we, when kids climbed trees. We could walk up from Indrapilly where we were to the Mount Kutha kiosk, you know, through a bush track and that that was just normal sort, sort of stuff. You know, we rode scooters and sometimes bikes and we just had a lot of fun and a lot of that has been lost. You know, I say to people now... Um, if someone says to a kid, let's, uh, let's come and play cricket, they might turn the cricket game on on the computer. Mm. Yeah, all, all that outdoor fun and sport and frivolity uh, is pretty well gone. You've given me a flashback. I once fell out of a tree over at Petrie when I was probably uh, eight or ten and I was so winded I couldn't breathe. It was a very scary moment. I don't know why that just came, came to me. Uh, apart from the nuns, who else influenced you and your ideas growing up? Well, we didn't get television until 1959 in Queensland, and um, it's difficult to say, you know, besides the, the, the teachers, some of whom were good, some who just liked to resort to, to belting you, um, but ones who instilled a whole range of um, studies in you. I, I remember in um, you know, mid-secondary school, we, we studied all the sciences, astronomy, geology, chemistry, physics, biology, and I think it was that learning experience through a range of teachers and I can't single out one individual person, but I think it was the education system there that gave us a, a well-rounded understanding of a lot of things in life later on. And I, I, I never thought, of course, uh, you know, for a second that learning about physics or the camber of roads or, or you know, water finding its own level and things like that that would help me in, in local government you know, decades later. By the time you got to the last year of high school, did you have a firm idea of what you wanted to do? No, not really. I, I was planning to go to university. That was in the days of the Vietnam War and a conscription, of course. Um, they were yeah, pretty difficult sort of times uh, for families. Uh, never a specific uh, plan or, or, or an idea of you know, what, what to do, but it was just the opportunity to move forward, and, um, which is you know, what, what I did, um, and then married in the uh, mid-70s. And... Um, 
Yeah, it was just an opportunity in life that I came to live in, in Goodna in 1974. Um, I joined the Labor Party a year later in 75 and became an alderman in 1979. So I had a pretty quick change in my life. But as I said, uh, we were part-time aldermen in those days, which was difficult to juggle a full-time job in the Commonwealth Government or anywhere else in, indeed, um, and being an alderman where people still thought that you were full-time councillors. What prompted you to move to Goodna? Uh, love. Marriage. <laughs> Good motivation. Yeah, and they were in the days when a lot of people thought that, um, you know, Goodner was a long way out. I still remember in, in those days going to school, the nuns used to threaten us, and a lot of people around Queensland will remember this from the 50s and 60s, that if you misbehaved, the, the nuns and teachers would tell you you'd be going up the line or down the line to Goodner, which of course was the mental asylum. And um, that was very well known. So everyone had this huge fear of this place called Goodner. And about 20 years ago, I went to a Holy Family School reunion for a whole range of classes. And I remember saying, remember Mother Matthew, who used to tell us, this is to about 200 ex-students, he used to threaten us to go up the line to Goodner. And they all yelled, oh yeah. And I said, you know what? I was the only one who did. <laughs> How would you describe life in Goodner? in that period, the mid to late 70s? Well, the most amazing thing, and this will surprise a lot of people, they were in the days where in the city of Brisbane, which stopped at um, the old Shell Roadhouse at Gales, um, uh, which was just in the city of Ipswich, uh, petrol um, controls where they had rostered service stations in Brisbane. I think there was a couple on the north side after 12 o'clock on Saturday and all day Sunday and a couple on the south side. When you got to Goodna, you were outside the metropolitan area. You ran out of petrol if you were uh, driving or particularly uh, with a mower. You'd buy it any time, 24-7. I thought that was pretty cool. People might think that's nothing at all, but um, it was like in 19... Uh, 73, you know, when the Whitlam government abolished radio and television licences. That was a really, really big deal. People were being prosecuted, hauled through the magistrates' courts for not having a, a licence for their radio or television. That has all been forgotten. But we've had a lot of big changes over the years. That petrol... Goodner was a great place. It was um, just starting to emerge as an area being uh, developed. And, of course, it had the floods of 1974 and then um, 2011. Uh, but a lot of good people. And the Royal Mail Hotel was one place, uh, and that's been there for 130 or 40 years. A lot of stories going through there. If you think there's gossip in politics, you won't get as much gossip uh, in politics as you do at the Royal Mail Hotel at Goodner. <laughs> Talking about those service stations on roster reminds me of the uh, the old rule that uh, the hotels couldn't trade all day on Sunday. It was 11 to 1 or something like that, and then 4 to 6. And But the, but the hotels out of town could trade all day Sundays. What was the rationale behind that, do you know? Yeah, I remember that uh, clearly. The law in Queensland was that all hotels, um, this is up until the 70s, were closed on Sundays, except if you're a bona fide traveller. And a bona fide traveller was one who travelled for more than 15 miles. So the troops in Goodna had worked out that from Goodna to Marburg was just on the 15-mile limit. So they'd drive up to Marburg. I never did this, by the way, but um, the, the, the hardened drinkers would drive up to Marburg uh, just on the 15-mile limit and they could drink all day because they were a bona fide traveller, even though they were going back home in the afternoon. Then you're right, they brought in 11 till 1 and 4 till 6. But in um, 
Ipswich, they, uh, the trading hours in the afternoon were five till seven. So people would drink at the Oxley Hotel from four to six, jump in their car, within 10 minutes they were at the Royal Mail and the Waruna Hotel, the Cecil Hotel at Goodna, for another 50 minutes of drinking, which I always thought was amazing. But that was life and that was how a lot of people lived in those days. Let's go back to your first run for council. Uh, did you have any mentors at the time and, and what did you learn on the fly while campaigning that very first time? That was interesting. Um, Bob Gibbs had just been elected as the state member for uh, Bundamba um, and uh, about two years, 18 months earlier, so he, he had encouraged me to nominate uh, for council. It was pretty well unknown to me, but I got a good feel for the area. They had an undivided council prior to that, up until 1976. In the 79 election, they, they brought in uh, 10 uh, divisional aldermen, and uh, I'd stood for Division 2, and um, that were in the days when we were um, endorsed by the Australian Labor Party. Uh, that's no longer the situation, and uh, I won that seat. Um, th there was no sitting um, alderman in that seat, so that in some ways made it um, easier. And um, yeah, election night, um, I'd won with a bit over 70% of the vote, so I was, I was pretty chuffed. That is a huge win uh, first time round. And once you got into council, what were your early wins in terms of changing policy or budgets? Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting because you've got to remember we were a part-time councillor. Des Freeman was the, uh, the mayor and uh, he was full-time. Um, we were always very conscious of, of the fact that it was a, a working-class city in a lot of ways and that rates were, uh, were um, uh, huge amounts for a lot of people even then, even though they were much less than they are now. They still um, were, you know, hit the back pocket nerve for a lot of people. I remember one of the achievements was pushing, and this took you know, almost 20 years to get the city completely sewered. Now, there's a couple of little odd spots here and there because of really rocky or, or difficult terrain, but um, getting the city sewered to about 98%, and I'm not talking about the current layout where yeah, you've got those remote rural areas, but those major urban areas, I saw, thought getting the city sewered was you know, a big way forward. But again, that's just normal now. Young people, couples, they move into estates, sort of Red Bank Plains or, or Ripley or Springfield. It's normal to have sewerage. But when you come... And I still, when I was first elected, there were people in Goodna who'd still remembered that, that, that before they had town water, you know, the water came from tanks. You know, so I went through an era where we were moving from one area of lower facilities to a much higher uh, facility demand. Let's break down your 40 plus years by the decade. Let's start with the 80s. And in my mind, it's obviously the Reeds fire. What was it for you? Yeah, in, uh, I think so. In 85, that was, um, that was just a, a, a few weeks. I think it was about three or four weeks uh, before Red Bank Plaza opened. And uh, Reeds was the, the, the centre point of activity um, in Ipswich. People would congregate there, meet there, do a lot of their shopping there in the department store. Um, you know, uh, principally at the corner of Brisbane Street, um, and it, it was it, it knocked the stuffing out of the city. You know, what, what a major sort of blaze! And Red Bank Plaza got a got a big boost in a way um, as a result of that. That was when Red Bank Plaza um, had opened. You know, the, the biggest development in the eastern suburbs. And then that started this concept of the city of centres, you know, genuine centres where not all the development goes to the CBD. And nowadays we've got places obviously like uh, Springfield Central, Orion, you know, Red Bank, the other centres like uh, Bouval, Brassel, you know, Yamanto and so on. 
Also at that time, a, uh, a redhead entered council. Before she was famous, I guess you'd say, you would have encountered Pauline Hanson in the chamber. Yeah, Pauline, she, was, she had the fish and chip shop um, at Silkstone. And um, yeah, she got elected. That was, that was actually um, in 1994. Um, that was when David Underwood, who was the mayor, he'd been expelled from the uh, Labor Party and there was a group of uh, independents uh, who were elected. It actually went from 10 Labor and one independent to one Labor and 10 independents. I was the one Labor. I was the one survivor, e even then. Um, and the people of the Goodner area you know, stood behind me again. But Pauline got elected. A lot of people asked me, what was she like then? She was a newcomer, I can say honestly. Like, uh, she had her firm views on a lot of things. She thought we were giving too much funding to um, Ipswich Rugby League um, and a few things like that. She tried to stop the development of the new library, but that was well underway. But she didn't sort of display, um, you know, a lot of, I, I guess, the conservative views which came to the fore when she got into federal parliament. You've mentioned Dave Underwood's name. Uh, there's a very famous incident back then. It's called the Black Box Incident. David Underwood was always going to go down fighting, and he did. In a startling opening, the mayor produced a mysterious black box. It's a metal box, it's locked up. Maura Pandora's I box of files, revealing, saw. he said, long-term council corruption. That is it imperative that in the city of Ipswich, uh, that this matter be cleared up once and for all. The it's Labor deputy counterpunched, waving the mayor's two-year phone account of $10,000. calls were made, he said, when the local newspaper ran a phone poll on the mayor. And show the people of Ipswich once and for all! Where the corruption comes from? Where the corruption comes from? If there's any corruption in this council, it's coming from the top. As theatrical as it was dramatic. I'm saying to you, Alderman Underwood, to get down out of that chair and resign from this council. So, Paul Tully, what was and what led to the black box incident? I remember that night uh, well. The, um, the mayor came in and directed the... Uh, CEO to uh, bring in the black box and I direct you to open the black box and then David Underwood then uh, put his hand into the black box which was just a metal container but it sounded like the most sinister thing in the southern hemisphere and um, I didn't know what the documents were uh, but what I can reveal because uh, he didn't reveal them and he couldn't reveal them but they were rec records relating to um, the cessation of employment of the former CEO. Now, there were confidential documents, which I, I've never seen. Um, he was calling for some... Um, he claimed there was some corruption about that, which was just absolutely idiotic, because David Underwood was on the outer at that stage and was grasping, grasping at straws over a lot of things. So this famous black box, which, which it, actually it was one of the old metal containers they used for elections. Yeah, now they use cardboard boxes, but there was this huge black box sitting up there, all the media there... Um, so he opened the black box and said how bad it was, but didn't and couldn't reveal what was actually in it. Um, and I can't reveal exactly what... I think it was um, confidential uh, documentation in relation to that matter. But then I remembered Norm Kruger, and he was a pretty fiery um, uh, councillor um, or alderman at that time, and he said that it was Underwood who was involved in corruption because um, his mobile phone had uh, been used 
to um, make, um, or a phone, might not have been a mobile phone, hundreds of calls to a 0055 number. And that was a poll being conducted by the Queensland Times uh, about whether or not David Underwood should repay money or do something else. So he was using his own phone, to, um, uh, which was paid for by the council, to, to boost the voting numbers on a poll by the Queensland Times. So Norm Kruger, like, like he, he, was a, he was a great orator. And I remember that night, he, he just demolished the mayor. Yeah, in one hit. And I'd like to thank Channel 9 for that audio and uh, the other voice in that was Norm Kruger. Um, also in the mid-90s, uh, the issue, the big issue was amalgamation between Ipswich City and Morton Shire. I recall you campaigned against it. The state gave council a five-year term for that transition. What were the major hurdles to overcome? Well, the reason I opposed it was the the community was never properly consulted. I believe there should have been a a vote or a referendum taken of the people of Ipswich and Morton as to whether or not we should be amalgamated. Um, And this was in um, 1994 and the election in 1995. And that's true. They put us on a five-year term because we skipped the normal 1997 election. Um, There was a lot of concern. The Morton Shire almost completely encircled uh, Ipswich uh, from Carroll Park west through Red Bank Plain and then right out into the rural areas and back through Carolee and Karana Downs. And there was a lot of angst about that because the rural shire had, you know, the Morton Shire, it operated as a very a well-known, everyone knew the local councillors, they were pretty involved, but there was a lot of development happening. I, I just took a simple and pragmatic view in relation to that. If you want to make major changes like that, have a vote of the people to see if they support it. But then we faced a lot of challenges. You know, we had uh, two, two different town planning schemes to, to bring together. We had uh, different local laws for each council. Um, we had uh, different financial matters. We ha- even had different rubbish bins. Like we, we had a recycling bin there. Everyone knows the yellow top. Morton, we had two bins, the red top and the yellow top. Mortonshire had one bin with a divider through the mill- middle. And um, so you put your, your, your protestable waste in one half and, and your recycling in the other half. Well, of course, that didn't work. And I remember the day after the election, I had a couple of calls of two calls. One, one person wanted to, to get the new bin straight away. Now it was all the city of Ipswich, uh, get the second bin. And another pensioner wanted to get the Ipswich City Council uh, pensioner rebate, which Morton Shire didn't give. And we got them both within a year. Both were able to be provided. That's pretty fast work, all things considered. 28 years later, what's been lost or gained for the city and its residents with that amalgamation? Well, the big thing was the development which was coming, and perhaps the state government was acutely aware of that, and I'm talking about in particular uh, the Springfield uh, development, um, which is in itself has got something like uh, 40 to 50,000 people. Uh, when I was first elected, um, Ipswich was 80,000, Morton Shire was 50,000. As I said before, we're now a quarter of a million. So the amount of development in what was the Morton Shire, in the Chimera, Springfield, Red Bank Plains, Ripley Valleys, Walloon area, that was part of the Morton Shire. That certainly the development over the years has been better coordinated and better managed by a larger council. It was a rural council, and I'm not saying they were hillbillies, but by any means, because I don't believe that. They were very well-intentioned people. Um, but that the, it became an enormous task to deal with uh, multi-million dollar developments. And I think the cities benefited from, from that. The, the, the newer estates that are built, uh, everything's curbed and channeled. The people have got good parks, people have got good facilities. The railway lines come to Springfield and hopefully we can get it to the Ripley Valley and beyond uh, back into Ipswich in the future. So a lot of challenges and uh, I think the city has benefited. 
Do you think councillors in 1995 realised how big this was going to be? They were the days when Ripley Valley wasn't even thought of, mm. so probably not. We, we knew the challenge was, was at Springfield with uh, Maha Sinathambi's uh, Springfield uh, City Group uh, development and um, yeah, the Orion development there. The, um, now we've got the, the Lions Stadium at Springfield Central. But to answer your question specifically, I don't think people realised how big and how quickly the, the development would occur in Ipswich. Let's move into the 2000s, the dawn of a new century, more new faces in the council chamber. Can you recall the major issues facing council in the year 2000? Yeah, in the year 2000 and beyond, we had a range of new councillors, but we realised by then the amount of development that was occurring. Uh, environmental issues came to the fore, yeah, how much land the council could and should properly take. And, and it was an era of change um, in the council. John Nugent, of course, had been elected in 95 and then again in 2000. He was from the Morton Shire um, and then became the, the Ipswich mayor. But it, it was a challenge because we were moving forward. There was job creation initiatives that we were looking at. There were opportunities for sport and youth sport. Because people look to councils for you know, a, a lot of the initiatives in this area, even though they're ultimately funded by the state or federal government. You know, road systems like um, people recall what they call the old Spaghetti Junction at, um, at, at Gales, you know, before the Logan Motorway was built. It was a, a lot of um, uh, pressure that we put on the state and federal governments, even the upgrade, the later upgrade of the Ipswich Motorway uh, from... Um, Dara, yeah, right through to Riverview. That's one of the things we did. We're, we're pushing for things that were outside the scope. You know, it was a national highway, the Ipswich Motorway. It wasn't a council responsibility. But pushing for things like this, that this is one of the key things nowadays. If there's money there and the feds are prepared to pay, uh, like the buyback from the floods last year, that's a federal and state government initiative. And that has worked very, very well just because you had councils like Ipswich pushing the feds and the state government. Can I take you to the council decision to buy the old Ipswich City Square? Ipswich City Centre has been the sleeping giant of Queensland, just waiting for the day when it could rise to its rightful position as a major regional centre of the southeast. That day has come with the launch of the Ipswich Regional Centre Strategy, a strategy powered by an innovative mix of catalytic projects designed to transform Ipswich Centre into a world-class city. It's a strategy that leverages southeast Queensland's booming growth and the Queensland Government's network of regional activity centres that will drive growth into the future. Ipswich is identified as a principal activity centre and is already benefiting from the interest generated around key catalytic projects. The Ipswich City Council and the Queensland Government have been working closely to create a blueprint for the Ipswich City Centre that will stimulate new opportunities for the business and residential community. What we heard there, Paul Tully, was some audio from a uh, joint video production between the, the State Government and Council, either just before or around the time the decision was made to buy Ipswich City Square. How did that decision come about? I still recall an early morning phone call from Paul Pasali. He said he had a really great idea, and I say what I'm going to say now nicely, that Paul Pasali's good ideas were either really good or perhaps uh, not so good. He said he had an idea of to buy Ipswich City Square, which was owned by T.P. Tay, a Singaporean. It was run down and um, needed a big boost. 
And immediately Paul, within probably less than two minutes, was able to convince me that it was at least a good idea to look at. And uh, council eventually bought it. It's very rare for any council in Australia to print, buy the principal development within its own CBD. We bought that for just over $50 million. The first de joint development we did was in Bell Street. That was sold for $93 million. But that council and those councils and the current council, it's always difficult where the council is the developer. There, there's major cost pressures, there's people who say council shouldn't be involved in that. But I can tell you, if the council hadn't bought Ipswich City Square, um, there were no other buyers around you know, at the time. We had the foresight to say, if we're going to move this forward, if we're going to try to attract people into the CBD of Ipswich, we, we, we've got to do something. Ipswich is a very elongated city. By that I mean it runs from Gales to Grandchester and um, it's a bit over a thousand square kilometres. Most cities in Queensland are, are concentric, like uh, Maryborough, Bundaberg, Rockhampton, Townsville, where it's a circle of all roads lead to the CBD. And as you would know, people who live in the, in the eastern suburbs, say in that Red Bank Plains, Gales, Camira, Springfield area, a lot of them work in Brisbane. A lot of them go to entertainment in Brisbane. They, they might go to cinemas in Brisbane. The trick is to keep them in the city of Ipswich and attract them back to the CBD. You know, to have in the CBD nighttime entertainment, nighttime restaurants, nighttime facilities, because we've got a lot more workers there now because of the uh, council administration building during the day. It's still difficult because councils typically are doing more than just roads, rates and rubbish, but we're still fighting to get people back into the CBD, particularly at night. Back in 2009, that video clearly demonstrated that the state government was on board and financed the borrowings. Nearly 15 years after that initial decision, and that was the launch time frame to, for the redevelopment, so in my eyes it looks like it's pretty close to the original prediction, uh, what would you have done differently? Probably not much, because people in life and, and counsellors and business people, you take opportunities based on the information and the advice at the time. And provided that's done in good faith for a proper purpose, I think people will say, and counsellors, if it's a council or a business, should say, well, yeah, take the opportunities if they present themselves. Yes, there might be difficulties uh, along the way, but the, uh, we always knew it was going to be a difficult process and an ongoing process. And then, of course, Riverlink came along. Now, if we hadn't done what we were doing and getting involved on our side, what I call our side of the river, Riverlink would have totally um, dominated um, the number of people coming into what you'd call the CBD, including that part of North Ipswich where Riverlink is, the, the, the fact is that it would have died you know, almost completely. And unfortunately, people don't recall that. Uh, now, mostly both sides of the river coexist, but I still think there's more to do and we need to keep getting people into it. It's, it's people who bring the money in and people who come for the entertainment and, and, and the involvement in the CBD. That's how every capital city in Australia operates and a lot of the major centres like Townsville in particular and uh, for example Toowoomba make it in the CBD. Let's move on to something else and that is cost of living and homelessness. You can't turn on the TV or, or look at a paper without it being in the news. Is this the worst you've seen it since you were elected? Yes, I think so. A lot of our homelessness is a little bit hidden because something I learnt a few decades ago that 
The homelessness that is very evident in um, Brisbane and capital cities is lots of people in lots of parks sleeping there, whereas there's a lot of couch surfing in Ipswich, young people who move from how they might be in a house but they're still homeless. And uh, sure, there are some living it a bit rough under, under shelters and things like that. But I think we need to realise that it is a serious issue. Again, it's not the primary responsibility of local government, but local government needs to be there to facilitate um, the, the people who need um, the assistance. Um, some things we can't do and don't have the legal... Like the cost of living, it's pretty difficult for a local government to, to be involved in that. But we can pre put pressure on. We can pressure the state members and the federal members. There's a, a lot of funding, like... It, Taxpayers in Australia are paying a king's ransom, almost individually, for, for, for facilities. And I think we've got a good bunch of state and federal members. And I, I talk about whatever side of politics. One thing I've seen over the years, uh, people are genuine in politics on both sides. It's not as though they're just sitting, sitting there and you know, eating cream buns and drinking coffee all day. What I've noticed in Ipswich, and I can be fairly dispassionate about this, is hard-working uh, state, federal members and councillors who want to do the right thing. But homelessness and the cost of living is something we can work hand-in-hand hand with the state and feds, but we need their support, number one. Does council have any other role to uh, developing solutions for the homeless? Well, it's very difficult, for example, um, we, we don't set up you know, individual facilities, and sometimes... Um, yeah, one of the issues that we face is drug rehabilitation places, a lot of opposition to that. Councils need to be strong because that is a serious medical issue in our community and I think sometimes um, people just say, oh, they shouldn't exist or, or put down people who might be going through medical episodes. What we can look at, of course, is the right zoning for um, uh, women's shelters and things like that. Sometimes it's, it's not as obvious where councils are, are assisting. That in, in that particular way. But yes, council can play the role, but often it's, it's being uh, at the lead in, in, the, in the sense of communicating, informing and educating the community. You had a breakthrough recently with some uh, community funds that were raised under the previous council and there were a few hurdles to overcome before you could do that, but you've, you've had some success. Yeah, that's, that took a long time. There were two funds set up by Paul Pasali. One of them I wasn't even a signatory to. Uh, the other, um, and Paul was a signatory to both, but we, we know that he was uh, not capable of, of being involved, but resolved in the last few months, despite uh, negative commentary from uh, one television station um, in Brisbane. It was the first television station in Queensland, although I won't name them. But yeah, we got $280,000 out to a, a whole range of uh, community groups, not-for-profit groups, obviously, and those two uh, funds have been uh, uh, wound up. And, um, yeah, the payment's gone to a whole broad range of people throughout the Ipswich community from, from Gales to the west. The city's had its fair share of natural disasters, mainly flooding because of the topography and the city centre built next to the river because that's what people did in those days with the, uh, the, the white settlers. 2011 was major. It was tumultuous for the city and I'm still having flashbacks and I'm sure you do too. What will be your lasting memory or memories? Well, the memories will be at a personal level. My wife and um, boys were overseas at the time. Um, Toowoomba had the um, inland tsunami on the Monday. The Tuesday uh, was, was when it went through uh, Grantham uh, on the Monday and Tuesday. I never realised that that Monday night, 
uh, was the last night I'd ever spend in, in our home and never did. And um, the water started coming up by, I left the home at about five o'clock. I had my cousins, we, we had some suitcases. We looked like Indian beggars with these suitcases walking out of the place. We couldn't even drive out because the water was coming up around our ankles. And um, I had to ring my wife to tell her what she didn't get back until the Saturday night. And to lose everything, it was a two-storey house. The water went to the tip of the roof. And the, the boys lost everything. They were eight and ten, I think, at the time. And uh, James, he was the younger one. He I still remembered this to this day. And that, that's why I feel for other people, mainly because I know exactly what it was like James said to me, Dad, were you able to save any of the drawings or school reports and things I had from school? I said, oh, no, sorry, mate, I wasn't. And he put his little hand on my left arm and he said, it's OK, Dad, we'll get by. And if we could get by, the rest of the community, in their own way, could get by. But um, in, in politics, you... You meet a lot of people over the years who've suffered a lot, you know, car crashes, deaths, fires, break-ins, a whole stack of things. This was the first and only time, I guess, where I was able to understand the tragedy that each family was going through. Let's move on to more current issues. Last month, several motions were put up at the Local Government Association of Queensland annual conference, these motions by Ipswich City Council. One in particular I'd like to talk about and that's the one regarding the Office of Independent Assessor with pending changes to the Local Government Act. Firstly, what are the changes being proposed? There's a whole raft of changes that are before the, before the Parliament at the moment. The draft bill has been presented. We'd ask for it to be hurried through the Parliament so people standing at the election next year would know what the new rules were going to be. No problem with that. We believe that that will probably go through Parliament at the end of uh, this month. Some of the rules are that uh, personal matters um, uh, will no longer be investigated by the OIA. So if it was a personal matter that might have... Um, touched on what a councillor could do. Sometimes you might want to tell someone to get stuffed in a shop or something. Um, that will, no, yeah, pretty low-level stuff. You know, everyone thought the OIA was going to look at serious misconduct. If it was corruption, they could look at it and send it to the Triple C. But some of the other procedures will be that there's going to be an initial assessment of every application. And if it's minor technical sorts of things, hopefully they won't be investigated. But some of the things they've investigated are, are like a, a complaint. This was an Ipswich one that one of the councillors um, shouldn't have been in a, in a picture with a federal member, it should have been another councillor. And think, you know, like, th that's just day-to-day -day politics. Like, if the Premier's in a picture, someone, is a minister going to make a complaint that it should have been them? Like, just minor stuff where taxpayers' money is just being wasted on, on absolute trivia. Up till now, we've had many examples in the media that the OIA has been used frequently by councillors, and not just Ipswich, across the state, as you say, to tattletale about uh, trivial matters, has the OIA contributed to a better or worse working relationship between councillors? I don't know if it's worse, but certainly no better. Like cases of um, um, inappropriate conduct, which is a lower level again, they're referred back to councils to vote on their fellow councillor. 
Now, there's no way in the world after you um, e either create friendships between councillors or enemies between councillors. It's very, very difficult to, to get uh, a truly objective, independent vote being taken. That's one of the things that's not coming up in the current bill but needs to be looked at because when you've got councillors pitted against other councillors, voting on other councillors. It, it, it's not a good system. It needs to be independent. It needs to have a right of appeal or a right of review of some kind. And that, that I think, is the problem with the, the OIA. Sometimes they, they don't understand local government, that, it, that it's a, at a political level, and lots of things are, are pretty normal in politics. Can I say if the OIA operated at state level, there'd probably be hundreds of complaints from around Queensland uh, every week. You operated under both systems of uh, oversight of councillor conduct. Should the OIA be abolished and go back to the old system? Well, I think there's scope for the OIA in relation to misconduct. People voting on matters when they've got a uh, pecuniary interest, when they've got an interest in a matter, where they've acted improperly in relation to a matter, that's fine. But, but some of the other activities are, are, are so uh, remote and, and so insignificant in terms of uh, professional conduct it makes no difference about who was really in a picture or who might have breached a, you know, a policy about the media and so on. The OIA is, is probably OK, but it needs a complete revamp and a complete cultural change to ensure that, that minor technical sort of things don't see the light of day. As we get to near the end of our chat, Paul Tully, let's think about your single biggest achievement in public office in just over 40 years. I guess couple of things. Population increase. When I was elected, as I said earlier, Ipswich was 80,000. It's now a quarter of a million. I think that's important because that gives a much bigger economic base uh, for the community. That's the Western Corridor. That's, that's why I wanted the NRL team to be here and not in Redcliffe. Um, you know, to me, the NRL got that completely wrong because you know, the true Western Corridor is from the western suburbs of Brisbane, the far western suburbs around that Forest Lake area, right through Ipswich, probably the northern suburbs of Logan City around Greenback, and they're right out almost to Toowoomba. You know, it's a true Western Corridor. Toowoomba's got its own TV stations, which we don't, specifically in Ipswich. That's a big thing. Um, as I say, the NRL decision was made and it's already gone. Sewering the city, that's, that's something that was a big deal when I first got elected. I guess from memory it was about 65, 70% of the city was sewered in 1979. And to get the all done, pretty well all done, 99% of the urban areas sewered. That might not seem like a big deal to a lot of people, but when you had the dunnies out the back and the weekly collection, um, and I still remember uh, when I was first elected, uh, we didn't have uh, recycling bins. We had the uh, tin can that the... Um, the Garbos came twice a week. They'd run, and, and they jumped the fence. They'd jump the fence, sometimes trip over, and, um, and they'd fill their tin can. It was just, just hopeless. Mm -hmm. And um, I pushed for, for that to... Well, Brisbane had already brought in the, the single recycling bin. That, that's a big change. What happens is that kids grow up, and that's normal. But when you were fighting for those things in a decades gone by, it's still significant in my mind. I always fought for what I thought was the best thing for the residents and the community. What's still on your list to achieve? Is it a, a new performing arts centre, a sports stadium? What's on your list? 
I think a performing arts centre for Ipswich, a really good one, uh, hopefully financed by the state or federal governments, at least partly. You know, we, we can't expect them to front up with everything. The North Ipswich um, Reserve in particular for a major sports facility, I think that's in urgent need we, uh, of an upgrade. People are clamouring for facilities like this. But at the end of the day, it's trying to make Ipswich a, a better, cleaner, greener city, more trees being planted and people having a good feel for, for the community. We've got the economic basis for the city, we've got the major developments at um, Red Bank Plains, Springfield, Ripley Valley, Walloon in particular. I think the continuity of that reduced, because when you get a new development, you're pretty good on the on the right side of the financial ledger. You don't for the first ten years. You don't need as much maintenance, for example, in new estates like with potholes and footpaths and concrete breaking up. So the more development, the better. But then that's got to be married with the environmental issues, um, yeah, which people need to be considered. But we need to house people somewhere. You've got young people growing up wanting a house. You've got interstate arrivals. You've got people coming from overseas. We need to face facts about making uh, Ipswich a desirable place to come to. If they don't come to Ipswich, they'll be going to Logan or Brisbane or Moreton Bay councils. And finally, with that March election not too far away, there's a few people putting their hand up already to uh, declare their intention to run as a candidate. Here's the million-dollar question for Paul Tully. Are you going to go around one more time in March? Well, I've had 13 successful uh, elections. Um, people ask me that every day, and I say I don't know because um, it's a decision that I need to make. My boys are off our hand. They're 24 and 22, and... They lost a fair bit with their dad for their, their whole sort of life. You know, was, they were born after I was elected. I was just away. I was busy, busy at night, busy at weekends, busy on you know, school, school projects and things like that. So to give back to my family is really important. So that's a decision I have to make. Not like some people who are humming and harring and probably really know what they're going to do. I don't know yet. I'll just sort of see what happens over the next couple of months. Paul Tully, appreciate your time. Thanks for speaking with Ipswich today. Thanks, Alan. Good to be with you. And a reminder to look for handy links in the show notes. Ipswich Today is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. This podcast is listener supported. Please make a once only gift or regular donation to help keep it online. Just go to ipswichtoday.com.au. Follow and stream this podcast from your favourite app, including iHeartRadio, or play Ipswich Today on smart speakers. Music is supplied by Purple Planet Music. This is Alan Roebuck. Thank you for listening. From legendary locals we all know to people you should get to know. Follow Ipswich Today on your favourite app and never miss an episode. Or go to ipswichtoday.com.au.